0: Buddy, and welcome back to another episode of your favorite swim bait podcast, Scales and Tails, episode 111 tonight. And out of 111 episodes, this one is probably one that kind of gives me a little bit more butterflies than than the normal guest, not taking away anything from anybody. But we are joined by a gentleman who wrote a book that I'm sure many of the listeners have uh, have read, if not once multiple times. And uh, we it gets referenced quite a bit, probably just as much as Pursuit of Giant Bass by Bill Murphy. It's kind of kind of goes hand in hand with that. Whereas Bill Murphy's talking about techniques and stuff. Uh, Salbelly actually kind of talks to the guys who were putting these techniques into place and kind of that early 2000s when, when that world record fish was, you know, just right on the tip of, tip of everybody's tongue and it was very easily attainable out there in California and, you know, some opportunities and stuff. And, and uh, Mr. Monty Burke actually got to interview many of the guys who I'm sure you guys are familiar with uh, more so than others probably like Mike Long. I'm sure everybody knows him. We've talked about him many times, but he got to interview these guys and and you got to fish with some of them on occasion too. So we're just gonna, I kind of have a bunch of questions kind of to pick his brain. This was uh, a very long time ago, not to age, age him at all, but it was, uh, was early 2000s. So uh, I got some questions kind of that he talks about in the book that I kind of just think it'd be cool to hear stuff that happened that maybe he didn't write about and kind of elaborate on some of the other things. So I will let Mr. Monty introduce himself and we'll get right into it tonight, guys. Hi, guys. Monty Burke here. How's it going? Man, this is just this is just so cool. I was just telling you before that uh, that a lot of guys who listen to this have, have read Sal Belly and I'm sure they are going to hear this and they're going to hear some of the questions that we ask and what you talk about and they're just going to be so... So excited to hear kind of the perspective you had. And I've, I've taken some questions from some other people that kind of had some questions that read the book. And I think it's just going to be a super cool episode. And what people might not know is you've actually wrote a couple books. Uh, you wrote that, uh, Saban, uh, is it the life of a coach? Is that what it is? The making of a coach, making yeah. of a coach. Yeah. And then you also have Lord of the flies, which is like Sal Belly, but it's for the pursuit of the world record Tarpon, correct down there in Florida. Right. Yep. I, I saw that and I'm like, okay, I'm tarpon's farthest thing, anything from I've ever catch, but that if it's like solid belly, it's probably filled with crazy stories and crazy interviews, much like solid belly. So kind of, uh, so in, in the book in solid belly kind of open, you open it up and you're talking about how you were, you kind of fished your whole life and everything like that. And then you were also uh, a writer at the time and, and obviously still are, but you uh you kind of were tasked, you had this idea of of writing this story. And it was actually an article before it was a story, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and so kind of in the realm of of writing for for big publications and stuff, you have to get your stuff, maybe not necessarily checked, but you run it past an editor to kind of get an idea of what they think, correct?
1: I do. I mean, so I was at Forbes at the time. Okay. Um and uh so everything had to do everything you wrote about had to do with you know the mandate was that it had to be had to be about money somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the time there was this uh, crazy club called the Big Bass Club, and they were offering uh, eight million dollars to any angler who broke the world record for largemouth bass, which, of course, was was and still is probably the most Hollywood record in fishing. 1932 George Washington Perry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just a really cool old record. And um it turned out that the Big Grass Club was was a house of cards uh, and it was a, kind of a Ponzi scheme. But um, that was enough to get my editor to, you know, my editor sign off on me going out and trying to, like, write a little bit about this chase. And the first person uh, that I came across was this great character, uh, this guy, Bob Crupe, who was a mm-hmm. motorcycle cop uh, <laughs> in, in California. And uh, so I just called up, you know, you never know if people are going to want to do a story with you or not but i called him up he was like yeah just come on out so i flew out to like to la and drove over to riverside and we fished together spent a couple days together actually and um you know the article turned out it was short it was like a thousand words something like that but it was enough for me to be like wow you know through croupy i started to hear about mac weekly and i heard about that research more about uh, george and perry's fish and heard about uh, mike long and a bunch of other people and you know, I was like, wow, this is this is this is a book. Um, yeah. So, you know, took took that article, expanded it to whatever, 10,000 words for a book proposal. And uh, my agent uh, sent it off and um, away, away I went. And it was so fun to do. It was so fun to do. So, I, you know, I grew up um, for a large portion of my life in the South and in, in North Carolina and in, in Alabama. And, uh, you know, bass fishing is religion down there. It's like college yeah. football. Yep, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in, at our house in North Carolina in particular, we had a farmhouse in the back down this kind of glade was a uh, a, a blackwater pond that had a little bit of an algae problem. But if the wind was up, the algae would be pushed over. Yeah. And I would go down there almost every day after school or after practice and fish for bass and uh, just got totally into it. And, um, you know, that kind of got me going on the on the
0: on the bass fishing. That's so awesome. So I guess it was probably that uh, the the Bass, the Big Bass Club or, or whatever it was at the time, that was kind of what drew your attention was the money aspect of, of the chase for the record Bass, whereas you were like, okay, this is something that I want to write about and kind of bring to people who have no idea about it.
1: Well, I was actually more intrigued with the actual record chase. I didn't yeah. The money was kind of secondary to me. Um, I was intrigued by, you know, what compels people to sort of, lose everything and they're willing to lose everything in their lives to just catch a world record fish like to me that's interesting that's like the very definition of obsession and obsession's always been interesting to me the big bass club was just the sort of carrot that i dangled out there so my editors at forbes would be like sure that sounds cool you know it had money it had big dollar signs all that kind of stuff like that but no that was just an excuse to excuse to launch into it really yeah
0: and that that's like i mean you answered like the first question i had was how did you get uh get an editor to kind of sign off on this this weird story of, of bass fishing that probably you know some readers probably have no idea or no interest in and so that's kind of obviously answers that question and at the time did you have to kind of do research to find guys like or did you have to do research to find bob or was he kind of were you in fishing enough that you'd kind of heard the name before through through newspapers and and articles and stuff yeah i'd read about croby because croopy came very close
1: to you know, he he was the guy who would come the closest to kind of breaking yeah. George Washington record, and uh, you know, he was. I didn't know much about him. I knew he was a cop. That's pretty much all I knew. But yeah, I'd read his name a couple times, and you know, the other guys. Uh, you know, the local papers out there wrote. Uh, it was a you know, it's back when papers actually had back when there were actual newspapers, and back when papers actually had you know outdoor sports sections. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they they were pretty hip on. Him. I mean, this was a time you got to remember that when. California was sort of peaking when it came to producing mammoth bass it, right. it, you know they'd introduced forest strain bass um and then of course you know to keep the trout anglers ha- happy had been filling up these reservoirs with 12 inch uh what really became 12- inch protein snacks for these yeah. bass so this is sort of that apex moment when these fish were reaching these prodigious sizes I mean they were they're actually like super unnatural looking they, they look they looked like I don't know, they look like, uh, you know, Fat Albert. Yeah, they yeah. They, they were sort of normal length, but their bellies would, ha- you know, they were they were almost round. Yeah. Their bellies, were, you know, they're almost as wide as they were long. Um, and so, you know, it just seemed like this was, the chase was on at this point I mean, and people were getting close, inching closer and closer to uh, this world record. And, and of course in the reporting, you know, uh, you know, I found out about, a crazy dude in Alabama, or actually from Alabama in Mississippi trying to raise his own world record bass. I yeah. found out that the state of Texas had its own program where they were trying to raise the world record bass to get some kind of commerce going. You know, I found this incredible character down in Cuba, uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> which it had its own moment um, you know, before uh the Russians sort of pulled all their money from Cuba, you know, and when when the Russians pulled all their money from Cuba, people started eating the bass. But mm-hmm. prior to that, Uh, you know, these lakes down there, Florida strain bass had been introduced down there and they were getting huge. And there were rumors of 27 pound fish down there and just like fish that were, so, you know, it all kind of like, it's so fun to go down these rabbit holes, especially if you really like the subject matter. Um, you know, the more you sort of talk to people, the more you read, the more you do research, the more you find. Um, and it
0: just, it was endlessly fast. Three words, lake pro tackle. Lake Pro Tackle has all the fishing equipment you need to have success on the water. Friends of the podcast will receive 15% off their order with code SCALES at checkout. On their website, you can find exclusive and rare baits, as well as rods and reels to have that dream combo. Check out their social media pages for constant updates with new arrivals. Lastly, orders over $50 get free fast shipping. Remember to use code SCALES, all cap locks, to save 15% off on your orders at lakeprotackle.com. A vast majority of double-digit bass caught in Mexico are caught out of two lakes, Lake Bacarac and Lake El Salto. Josh Daniels Pro Bass Adventures Mexico is the only outfitter in Mexico with lodges on both of these trophy lakes. For an experience like no other, call Pro Bass Adventures. 480-491-9300 or probassadventures.com. We are Mexico Fishing. Your favorite swim bait podcast is now proudly sponsored by Leviathan Rods. Leviathan Rods is a Texas-based fishing rod company that's handcrafted and uses high-end, made-in-the-USA rod blanks. Every sale from Leviathan helps support foster youth and their families. With Leviathan Rods, you're not only going to feel a difference, but you're going to help make a difference, too. Friends of the show will also get 20% off their rod purchases by using code SCALES20 at checkout. So whether you're fishing at Depth 250 or a square bill, make sure you're using the best rod choice out there, Leviathan Rods. Yeah. And, and you talked about the trout kind of, it was kind of the perfect storm when, when all these big fish in California were getting grown because all the trout stockings and stuff. And so that's kind of people that listen to this podcast are guys like, uh, I'm going to say guys like, uh, like Mickey Ellis, but that's kind of far from the truth as far as like they're fishing baits like that, that imitate trout to, to catch these these massive fish, the biggest fish in their, in their waters and stuff. And, you know, it's kind of that split where guys are doing it because they're baits that fish have never seen before pressured fish in their areas. And then there's also that other side of things where guys are fishing, you know, 14, 16 inch trout looking baits to try to catch that world record, state record. And, you know, it, it kinda, it's kind of stalled out as far as the world record stuff goes. I mean, there's big fish, obviously still getting caught in Texas, but, I mean, I, I put up a poll on, on my social medias the other day on asking where people thought the next world record would come out of, and it was kind of split 50-50 between Texas and Japan, and obviously uh, the, the Japan fish was caught after you had wrote sow belly and stuff, and you, I mean, you even hinted at it when you were talking about Cuba, you had put in the book, well, well, there's there's uh, lakes in Japan, there's uh, Africa, there's, um, I thought there was another one, but you talked about where... I'm just writing this from like the U S perspective. There's all these other lakes and regions that have this potential to grow these fish that I don't, like, I'm not talking to anybody from. And, but at the time in the early two thousands, I mean, you had Lake Dixon, like you had Lake Jennings and, and all these other couple lakes out there where that was, I mean, if people were sports betting back then, that's where they were putting their money on that. These fish were going to get caught out of was those lakes out there. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting to me. I mean, I haven't paid too much attention to it in the last five or six years, but, to watch the
1: sort of the, the the size go down. I mean, that was mm-hmm. kind of like it, it it reached its it sort of. It seems to me that the chance to do it, and of course, it could happen at any point in Texas, and Florida, in California. It could still happen whenever. Yeah. Someone could break the record, but the real chance uh, is probably that that is probably that window is passed uh, to a certain degree in terms of sheer numbers of truly truly huge fish. Um, you know, that was sort of the apex moment, uh, then I think, right, right. When I was doing that book, which was great, it just happened to kind of coincide.
0: With <laughs> yeah. Heck of a heck of a timing there. I mean, now, um, there's a lot of fish getting caught out of a handful of lakes down there in Texas that are all, you know, they're, they're very respectable fish, but they're fish that these guys, you know, guys like, like Matt and, and Mac and, and, uh, and Bob and stuff would just throw back. Cause they're quote unquote little shit fish, like, you know, 10 to, to 14 pound fish where, you know, they were just, they were taking a quick picture, tossing them back. And now that's kind of, I'm not going to necessarily say like the pinnacle of a big fish, but that is a, you know, your name is, your name is getting shared around on Facebook and Instagram if you catch a fish that big. And there was a couple within the last two or three years that were pushing that, you know, 15, 16, maybe there was a 17. I'm sure I'm, I'm misspeaking here, but you know, there has not been a fish over 20 pounds. I don't think caught in the last, you know, honestly, probably since California or, at least a fish that big that's publicly been talked about. I'm sure there's right. lakes down right. in Texas or California and, and there's word of guys in California still catching very large fish, but they're not blowing it up. Like, like what happened when, when Bob caught that fish and everybody was showing up to Lake Castaic and stuff. Yep. For sure. And and so it's just, it's just super, super interesting to see where like you said, technology and baits and everything are advancing, but we're taking a step back in fish size. It seems we're not seeing every two or three years a fish, you know, 19, 20 push 21 pounds or 20, 22.1 ounces. Like that just isn't a thing anymore. And I'm sure it it can happen, but it's going to have to be from a lake that isn't very pressured and isn't, isn't getting fish super hard. That's where, and, and then also it needs like, obviously the optimal growing conditions with trout or, or a lot of bait fish and just such a good environment around it that, that a fish can live the end of its days and, and push that 22, 24 pound pound sack. Yeah. And I, I just, I'm very hesitant to, to see it ever be broken anytime soon. But you know, if it happens, I'd be, I'd eat my words, but it's just like, wow, that just seems like a feat that uh, the train has left the station. I think, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, there's cycles and everything, right? I mean, who knows? Like a you could get an El Nino or something like that. I mean, yeah. Who knows? Right. Yeah, but no, uh, I I tend I tend to agree with you. I think that you know, and I you know I don't I don't mind that. I I think that record Perry's record. I'm glad that that uh, that the IGFA didn't you know make that Japanese fish bigger in some ways. Uh, not not that I have anything against the the guy. The guy's a great angler or whatever, but I just love the kind of romance of this country boy, you know, <laughs> going out to an oxbow, yeah. and catching and this massive fish and not really knowing what to do with it you know, weighing it and then eating it. I mean, there's, yeah. a lot of, there's, a, there's a real romance to this. There's kind of an everyman kind of American kind of wonderful romance to that story. You know, he wasn't professional. He wasn't using
0: the latest and greatest technology. He was just out fishing. You know, it's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, it, it's super cool. Um, obviously, for anybody who hasn't read the book, you go in depth like you you go and visit the now grass field that, that Perry caught that fish out of. And, and you're talking about uh like the bait and and like where he, it was a, it was a Creek chub. What was it? Was it bear Creek Creek chub or something like that? It was like creek, creek chub minnow, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. And like, you're going in depth with it and talking to people who who didn't see the fish, but knew him and stuff. And it's just, it's super cool. I mean, there's to my knowledge, there is not another book in the bass fishing industry that that dives into this just absolutely mind-boggling insane chase for this trophy fish that you know a couple hundred thousand people know or care about it's like very it's a very niche thing that you write about and I feel like anybody could pick this book up and I think they would just become immersed with it because you just you said it earlier like you had some characters in the book that you talked to and it just it just goes full circle and it's such a cool such a cool read I think I think obsession is kind of universal right like the
1: the sort of in a weird way, like obsession, little obsessions like this, like if I go out on the street and I'm like, Hey, I'm writing a book about uh, people trying to catch a world record bass or people trying to catch a world record tarpon. They look at, they look at me cross. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But everyone has these little, you know, it's kind of like what the, what makes the, all these little tiny ones all put together, all these little tiny obsessions put together, make the world kind of go around. It's what gets people out of bed. It's what, you know, it's what motivates them to do things. It's motivates them to greatness too sometimes, you know, and, I just find that endlessly fascinating. I mean, there's a real downside to obsessions too. Obviously, I mean, you can, you can, you know, lose your marriage. You could do, you can yeah. lose your job. There's all sorts of crazy things. And in the Tarpon book, actually, there's there's even crazier things that happen. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, so but but to me, there. I mean, every book I've written, even the coaching books, the football coaching books, are about mm-hmm. obsessed people. I mean, Nick Saban is an obsessed person. Yeah. Uh, the other guy wrote about Joe Moglia is obsessed. They're just obsessed with something different. And so I don't know, I've, I just I've always found I almost think that almost every article I've written written has been about someone who's obsessed with something, you know, it's like the motivating factor in their lives.
0: Yeah, it's always, uh, it's always super interesting to see kind of what makes other people get out of bed or or in the case of like, Bob, you know, getting off getting off of work from being a cop, and he literally, stops at the house, grabs his pack. What was it? Diet Pepsi grabs his 12 pack of diet Pepsi, hooks his boat up and and drives out to the, to the boat ramp. And I mean, that guy, you you talked to that guy and obviously, um, you got to fish with him and stuff. And he, uh, he just sounds like the type of guy who, you know, bass fishing was obviously his outlet, but not even bass fishing. It was catching that damn world record that he'd been so close to, you know, the only guy to my knowledge has caught two fish over 20 pounds. I mean, he was he was at the cusp of it. And he just, you know, time, time just ran out. I don't know the right kind of thing, but it just, it just never clicked for him. And, and you talk about how after he caught that, uh, that his biggest one, like 21 or 22, like just 21 point or 22.1, I think is what it was, was his biggest and how he just got, you know, he was that, that like bass fishing icon, everybody who was writing outdoor articles, everybody that had an outdoor show wanted to talk to Bob, wanted to see what he did, you know, just, just milk him for all his knowledge and all his stories and stuff. And that was kind of, you talked about his, his just absolute hatred for media and interviews and stuff like that, because he talked, you talk about like how guys are calling him from Japan all hours of the night. He's trying to sleep in his phone is his house phone is getting blown up and he'll just come home and erase all the messages because he just does not want to talk about it. And you're, you're talking about this while you just got done writing the interview with him, And I'm like, oh my gosh. So was it intimidating to, to kind of reach out to who reach out to him and try to interview him and pick his brain a little bit? Or did it feel at all standoffish? Like you talked about when you get into the suburban, He's like, what do you want to do, or, or something? And you said, I want to catch the world record fish. And he's like, Oh, that's not gonna, that's not gonna happen, or something to that extent. Was was that ever like, Oh man, I can't believe I'm talking to this guy. Like, I'm scared I'm gonna say something else that he doesn't like. Like that. He was so interesting because he was he was kind of on the
1: backside. Like he had been through the sort of whirlwind of of all of that by the time I got to him, and he was he clearly his sort of uh his desire uh, was waning at that point. Uh, And he was kind of had grown sick of all the attention had grown sick of seeing all the other people on the water doing the same thing. He was had grown sick of the people with binoculars, like, you know, trying to figure out how he was doing it. He just he just was sort of on the backside of all of that. So uh, but now he was he was I mean, I love, you know, so much of my job is like trying to figure out how to crack. You know, these people who who don't want to talk very much. Yeah, who's Um, got a shell around them. It was just about me keeping my mouth shut. You know and like people will eventually uh as long as you establish some sort of trust and kind of you know convey the fact that you're not gonna screw them over um people will eventually start talking most people will eventually start talking and you know he did he definitely talked enough that's for sure uh, and I feel like I got a pretty full portrait of of uh, you know what his life was like, what he was like um so yeah he was he was
0: fascinating, yeah, I think it showed it probably conveyed to him that you actually kind of cared and you weren't trying to just get content out of them when you went and fished with them the whole day and didn't catch anything. And were out there in the sun and, and, you know, we're, we're probably, you know, asking him questions, but also they were probably just genuine questions. When you meet somebody, you weren't trying to, to bite at the bit to hear what he has to say. And, and like you said, you establish a relationship with him, and he kind of opens up a little bit. And, and, you know, two hours later, and he's telling you about his life story and, and what this, massive fish he caught a couple of years ago did to him and kind of what made that shell go around him and stuff like that. I mean, that is just so cool. And that's honestly, probably a perspective that not many people would know about if you hadn't published the, published that in a book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was really grateful that he spent that much time with me. And was that forthcoming? It was great.
0: Yeah. And was that the only time that you had talked to him or did you keep tabs on him after, after you had interviewed him at all?
1: Yeah, I kept, I kept in touch with him throughout the reporting of the book just to see if anything new had happened or, you know, I'd ask him follow-up questions, you know, things that maybe needed a little more elaboration in terms of the notes I'd taken or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I, I kept in touch with him. I did not keep in touch with them. I think I sent
0: him a copy of the book, and that was the last sort of correspondence that we ever had. Oh, dang. Okay. And how he was like right around 50 at the time you had interviewed him or maybe a little bit older? Huh? Yeah. So it's been, I mean, 20 years. So yeah, it's, it's been a while. And then you, you talk about which I I read, reread the book this week and this part really stuck with me after I reread it. So you get back from this trip with California with Bob and obviously everybody there knows Bob and they probably see you fishing with this guy. And they're like, who the hell is this guy? You know? And you talk about, you got back to your office and there were, there were a couple messages on your phone. And two of these messages were from California, you know, bass fishermen, a uh, trophy bass fisherman at that. And they were like leaving worried messages on your answering machine. Like, Hey, is, is Bob still fishing for the world record? Like scared as if he's going to catch a third 20 pound fish that, that literally could be the one he needs. Was that kind of like, wow, this guy, you know, this guy hasn't been this guy's caught these two fish and people are scared that he's going to go for a three-peat and, and they're worried that he's going to beat them for a third time type thing. Was that kind of interesting to see?
1: Absolutely. And they also want to know if I picked up any, you know, i pick my brain about what he was, how he was fishing, where he was fishing. If he'd moved off of Castaic, and was going somewhere else. I mean, it, it was,
0: you know, people trying to get Intel basically. Yeah. Wow. Did, did you give any te- any, any entertainment to that thought or did you just delete those messages did you kind of get a chuckle out of it did you tell him by chance
1: I told him that, that a couple people had called um, and he said what'd you tell him I said nothing I just told him that we had a great interview and I was writing you up and that I'd be interviewing those people next
0: basically was there was there anybody that you had you had known or maybe he had talked about like oh I think this guy is going to be the next one to catch a big fish out of here. Or was there anybody that he was worried with? Was he worried about anybody else?
1: At that point, he really was kind of a little bit on getting into the kind of like over it stage, like just kind of over it. And he didn't, he didn't, you know, the whole hubbub was getting a little bit too much for him. So he didn't, he didn't ask a thing about anyone else. Not a thing. Didn't care about, didn't care what anyone else is doing. That's the way he always was anyway. I mean, he didn't, he didn't crib. You know, techniques from from anyone else on the lake. He did his own thing. Um, and That was kind of like his deal. So he didn't, he didn't care. He, he just didn't, he didn't want me to share any information. Of course, they saw it all in the book later on, but that yeah. was, you know, a year.
0: Yeah. And it's super interesting because he, like you talked about, um, it, you know, being obsessed in you know, pushing family out of the picture, like the picture you're in, and he was the guy who, who, like I said, was coming out of work, going to the lake, coming back, and he was just, he was literally obsessed, and and he talks about doing that for a couple of years, and then he talks about like, he was in a, he was in a little bit of a slump, I think, and he took that, uh, like that vacation with his wife down to Florida or wherever it was for like that week or two, and he talks about how he kind of like unwind, like he got unwind, and he wasn't worried about the fish at the time, and then. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he got like a 16 pounder while he was gone. And he heard about it, read about it in an article. And he looked at his wife and he said, we need to go home. Like, I, I need to be out on the lake. And then it was a couple weeks later, I think it was like two weeks later, he caught that 22 pounder. I mean, that is obsession to a T. That is what you wanted to write the, write the book about in, in the first chapter. Everybody who reads the book gets hit with that. And it's like, wow, this guy. You know, it almost seemed like he was teetering on, maybe not necessarily giving up, but but kind of backing out of it a little bit. And then, you know, just somebody, somebody catches that fish and that fire just gets rekindled in his heart. And he's like, I need to go catch this damn fish. I know it's there. I know it's the time. That's just so crazy to hear about.
1: Yep. That yeah, was cool.
0: And man, so after uh, you get the phone call and everything, did he, cause um, you talked about how, Mike Long was kind of coming up around that time you had gone out there or if not a year or two after, did he talk about Mike to you at all? Mike Long for, for anybody who's unfamiliar, did he talk about him at all? He did not.
1: He did not. He didn't, he didn't seem to, I mean, he cared a little bit about people who were on Castaic, I think,
0: uh, but he didn't, he didn't care about the other guys. He didn't Mm -hmm. care. Right. And, and you talk about how Bob had had this metaphorical, you know, trophy bass crown. And then towards, towards the end, he kind of, you know, it it essentially got handed off to Mike and, and Mike was fishing like Dixon at the time. And and I mean, he had like eight over 15 or I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I hadn't wrote him down. But Mike at the time was he was the guy everybody was having their money on breaking this fish, breaking this world record because he had so many trophies to his name and it was just kind of like oh i wouldn't be surprised if this guy's up next how did you hear about mike it sounds like he was in the paper and in in a lot of shows and stuff so it probably wasn't hard to run across him
1: In the paper and unlike bob mike was a was a self-promoter right yeah wasn't hard to find and there was no i i had very little doubt that when i called him and asked him for an interview that he would say yes and in fact i think i wrote about the book um when I first met him, I uh, drove up to his house. He had his big bass boat outside, and when I walked in, he and his family and some friends were watching <laughs> a Michael on video. Yeah, you know, which was just perfect. Um, I didn't know at the time, obviously, that uh, his, I think most of his. Obviously, later on, he got involved in some cheating scandals, which I which I think happened. He may have been cheating then. I'm not. I didn't see it when I was fishing with him, but uh, I don't think he was cheating at that point. I think he started cheating when Jed and Mac and those guys started you know, creeping up on a little bit. Um, So, yeah, I mean, he was the ultimate self-promoter. He was a hell of a fisherman. I mean, the uh, the biggest bass I've ever seen was the one that he caught on a lake that had been closed that he got a little access to. Um, It was just freaking annoying. I mean, I just, when I saw it, I was like, that's the world record. Right. gripped it it seven, six pounds lighter than the world record. I was like, this is insane. You can't, you know, there's no way. Sorry, my dog's chewing something
0: Oh, you're good, man. Um, yeah, it... Uh,
1: so, yeah. So it was, it, he, he was not hard to
0: convince to talk to, that's for sure. Right, and and like you said, you talk about arriving at his house, only bass boat in the cul-de-sac, and walking in, and obviously everybody's gathered around the TV watching this, but you also talk about all of his trophy fish have the mounts on the wall, and, and just seeing that, where, did it kind of click on why this guy was so so self-promoting? Like, oh, this is like, this is the bad big and bad kid on the block. Like I understand what he's doing now.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was
0: the, he
1: was doing it. It seemed to me for different reasons. creepy was kind of a personal thing. Yeah. Mike wanted one of the accolades, you know, and that, that's, that was a big difference. And I think that Mac and Jed, those guys were sort of somewhere in between. I think they were for them. It was more of a personal quest, but they didn't mind the accolades, especially back. But, um, but yeah, for Mike, it was all about, you know, how can he, Mike, also, also i think saw this as a money-making opportunity you know like uh if he were to do it he could get the sponsorships from whomever shimano berkeley you know yeah. g Loomis, whatever it was uh and so yeah he, he just came at it in a very different way but that was fun i mean it was fun to like have people have different motivations for their obsessions you know
0: yeah and he he hadn't even caught the world record yet he was just proclaimed as a as a big trophy bass fisherman and you talk about how he was he had all these rods on the deck and you actually wrote about um i can't remember the gentleman's name but he actually came up next to mike when he was fishing he's like oh my gosh is that the new Mega Bass rod blah 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 and mike's like yeah like was very short with him and the guy finally kind of took the message like it's like wow he you know he wasn't on the top of the pedestal he was on the pedestal but he was still getting you know free stuff sent to him like what would that do for somebody if they broke the world record? Like you talk about in the book, like they would never have to buy anything ever again. Everybody would know their name. Everybody would want to sign them to contracts and stuff. It's just so eye opening that, that you can be well-respected like that, but not be the top of the class and, and just still reap the benefits of it. Well, cause he's, he very much seemed like the guy who was
1: possibly going to do it. Right. I mean, that so that he was the up and comer mm-hmm. you
0: know,
1: and was interesting though, is when I really looked into it, um, you know, and talk to tackle companies and CEOs of tackle companies, stuff like that. I mean, there really wasn't that much money. It wasn't like Mike, if he had caught it for anyone, they'd be able to retire. It wasn't like, you know, because the big bass club turned out to be baloney. So there (laughs) wasn't, you know, yeah, you probably would never have to buy a rod again and you'd probably be able to charge for appearances and stuff like that. But you weren't, you know, you weren't going to buy a Lamborghini and move into a mansion. You know, I mean, you, you it wasn't, I think these guys thought, especially Mike thought it would be worth more than it actually would have been I'll put it that way
0: yeah yeah and it obviously everybody knew Mike and you kind of brought up um the the scandals that have have surfaced over the last six or seven years at that point in time was there did you hear of anybody you know kind of whispering in the shadows about Mike like oh he you know he caught this fish but I don't think he caught it you know legally or or he caught it in the mouth was there any talk like that because you often hear guys like around 2010 from what i know is kind of when that chatter started talking around that san fran area where guys are like oh like you know i saw mike doing this i saw mike doing that before this video came out was there any of that back then i mean there, there were there were people a lot of people didn't like him
1: yeah you right know, right Jed and those guys didn't didn't like him um and he did seem to have some kind of you know, the fishing on a lake that was close to everybody else is kind of a privilege that's not that not everybody gets. Um, yeah. But to me, Mike is the classic sort of you know, I mean, it's almost like a baseball player who's nearing the age of thirty five or thirty six, and there are other people who are you know get better than he is, and and you know like Barry Bonds or someone like that who yeah. who starts taking performance and hit, starts cheating basically, mm-hmm. or like Lance Armstrong, you know, someone who sees competition coming and. Is maybe their, their skills are diminishing and they're getting older or whatever, and they start doing kind of desperate things that they normally wouldn't do because they become they're so obsessed with this with this thing, you know. And yeah so to me that's kind of my classic, classic. I mean you can see it in almost every other sport. You know, when when there's either fresh competition or uh, they're getting older, uh, you know, often resort to, you know unconventional means. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: He just, he wanted to hold on to it as long as he can. And, you know, whether the fishing got super it tough or whatever.
1: It was, how, it was how he defined himself, right? He was the big bass guy. Yeah. I mean, imagine having that, imagine defining yourself like that and then having that taken away, you know, it can lead people to do crazy things.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so you just touched on the next question that I had. Um, it was Lake Jennings and I assume it was probably on Sundays is when this lake was closed, but a little known fact that many people, you know, didn't know or also didn't have the credentials to do is if it was like for articles or for like TV shows and stuff, you could pay the $300 and you could go out there with a camera boat and stuff on your own boat. And you could fish Lake Jennings on, on the days that the, the lake is closed to literally everybody else. And you talk about that's when you went out with them and stuff and it, you, you have the lake to yourself And when I read that, you know, I'm the type of guy where if you fish, you know, private waters or whatever, that's super cool or like, I don't care, whatever, but I read that and I'm like, and it may be because I know the type of guy he was, uh, he was shown a couple of years ago when that scandal happened. So, you know, you kind of probably, I have a, I have an opinion about him and I've never even met the guy or, or whatever it may be. And I was just like, man, that just seems like just the cherry on top of the whole situation on how he's, you know, granted he might not be catching these big fish at that on those days, but it's just like, wow, like the publicity, you know, it gets you something a little bit extra in the, in the bass fishing world. There are opportunities that, that these other guys didn't have. And did you hear about other guys, you know, pissing and moaning that, Oh, Mike gets to go fish the lake on Sundays when, when these fish are not pressured ever.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were, they weren't happy about it. And, um, you know it would have been interesting to me, um, and I thought about this quite a bit, like had he broken the record, honestly. Yeah, um, he would have caught an enormous amount of flack, and I think there would have been a lot of people who would have n- maybe not even seen it as a legitimate thing to do it, you know, in uh, you know, to do it in circumstances other people can't, you know, enjoy. That said, if Porter Hall can grow his own bass, in Mississippi in his private lake that no one else fishes, but Porter hall. Yeah. Um, what's the difference? You know? Uh, so I mean, there's, there, it, 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 there, there's definitely a quagmire you can get into with that. It didn't seem, it seemed kind of icky in a weird way. It's something that I probably would have done, but um, you know, I, I think at this point, again, if you're that obsessed, you're going to take every advantage and every opportunity that you can uh, to do whatever you can, you know? Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like if he was to catch, you know, 24 pound fish, it's almost like, man, there's gotta kind of, you know, in a way you would think that there's an asterisk next to his name where it's like under certain circumstances, you know, this fish was caught. We don't have any rules against it, but you know, this, this is the, this was the event on how it unfolded and, and stuff like that. And that's a very large gray area. I mean, technically, you know, by all things legal, he was able to be out there. He paid the $300. He was filming content for, for shows and articles and stuff. So by all, by all means of the law, that was, that was a completely legal fish if he was to catch it. But it's like, ah, ah, man, I don't know. Like you said, it's a, it's a very icky gray area that it's like, you know, if he catches that fish, 99% of the people are going to say it doesn't count, whatever it may be but that fish is obtainable to everybody else six days out of the week. So even just talking about it now, it's like when I wrote the question down, I was like, Oh man, like I can't believe that he did this. But now that we're talking about it, it's like there was really nothing that he was doing. That was against the legal law. That wasn't an opportunity to everybody else, you know, 90% of the time. And so it's just a, it's, you know, it's the asterisk, like if that was to happen, there would have had to been an asterisk there and, and the story would have been told. And, you know, I'm sure nobody would have agreed with it, but if it gets recognized as the world record, then it's, it's the standing world record at the time. So that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's just like we said, a gray area. And then this, so I read this part, um, Jed was out there fishing with live shiners Uh, and at the time he didn't know, like, this was obviously still when he was getting into bass fishing and stuff. And he didn't know that that trout were kind of like the big bass thing. And he was live lining these shiners and stuff. And, uh, Mike and, uh, John Kerr were out there on Mike's boat and stuff. And they were, what was it? A woods and water photographer. I think that was with them, if I remember correctly. And they were just kind of getting some content for magazines and stuff like that. And Jed caught this 11 pound fish and John, john and mike came over there and dude again i don't know if it's because i know the stuff that happened with mike long but if somebody's gonna ask to see my fish and and kind of you know the way they made it sound as they wanted is like a quote-unquote prop prop and stuff and like oh we'll let this fish go or whatever my mind's automatically going you have a camera i haven't seen you guys catch anything like this is just really straying away to be a very weird scenario. But Jed, they're like, yeah, you guys take the fish, whatever it may be. They, they promised they'd release it and stuff. And then they talk about two or three months later, Jed's in the uh, in the grocery store with his wife and they're walking through and, and those those big magazine racks are there by the checkout. And he's walking through and he looks and he sees Mike and John holding his 11 pound fish he caught the month prior, the couple months prior when the, when the woods and water photographer was with him. I read that part, and that was kind of what made me go back and add on to the to the original Mike Long question, where it's like, was there stories of him being not necessarily shady, but having interesting uh, events like this happen to him, where he, you know, takes somebody's fish and takes pictures with it or whatever it may be. And I just read yeah, that part. And I was it was it was shell shocked.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know at that point, Jed certainly knew that the guy was. You know maybe not perfectly ethical but you know i think people would be shocked at the corners cut and the tomfooler goes on with with you know uh, especially back in the day with like outdoor photography and you know the manipulation i mean i remember interviewing lefty cray the famous fly fisherman and he had one uh, side of his boat painted red and the other side painted blue and he would catch a fish and take picture on one side with the red side and then take another picture on the blue side so he could sell two different photographs really? I mean like, people did this kind of crap all the time and I, I personally have always hated taking pictures of fish because of that like I've seen so much of that bull crap and I've actually been on stories with photographers and you know most of them are pretty ethical but some of them are hold that thing up again and you're like dude the thing's been out of the water now for two minutes like what do you yeah. do? what are we doing? it's not it's not really worth it you know so yeah I think it's you know but no I definitely think that there were you know, I don't think people thought that he was necessarily cheating that Mike was cheating at that point, but I, I, I think that they knew that he was not above stretching uh, ethics a little bit at that point.
0: Yeah, and and it's kind of that age old thing where you know, pictures and fish go hand in hand. You can really, you know, doctor a photo to make a fish look a lot larger than it is with just you know camera angles and, and holding the fish out. obviously, everybody knows that who's listening to this. And and just to hear you talk about um, the unethical side of it, where, where they stretch, stretch it out a little bit, get a little bit more, get a little few more pictures of the same fish, different angles and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's not uncommon. You see pictures on Facebook and Instagram and you're like, wow, that looks a lot like the fish he caught two weeks ago. Like just, there's a different background. He's like in his boat and not on shore this time. And, and there's stuff, I mean, obviously not to that extent because, because it's not really like that anymore, but it's like, huh this guy is really trying to stretch out as much stuff with, with one very good fish. And I mean, back then, like you said, painting one side of his boat and the other side a different color, like that is some, I guess, obsession, but also like just wanting to be on the top. Like that's, that's like a mindset to have right there. Yep. Yep. For sure. And, and like you said,
1: probably more so these days actually uh, with Instagram and people trying to one up each other and all that, you know, back then it was just like you know outdoor magazines you know so it was like that was the only way to the only place where they publish fishing photos really
0: yeah and kind of uh while we're on the topic with with jed and stuff um so his friend uh it, w- it was mac right yeah so yeah. mac weekly who the, the name probably doesn't mean much to anybody but it's, it's the Dottie fish. So you guys have seen it. It's the guy wearing the, the black and white windbreaker. He's standing on the dock. He's holding up. I think it was a 24 or 25.1 pound fish. It's got the black dot under its uh, gill plate. Everybody knows this fish. And I actually didn't realize it until two days ago. I, I had reread the book, skimmed through it and everything. And I looked up, you know, just world record fish. And I was looking at the pictures and I was, and I, I read Mac and I'm like, huh. And I, I thumbed through the book. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is Jed's friend who worked at the casino with him. You know, his his batch, one of his bachelor buddies, he caught, he caught that fish out of Lake Dixon. You know, it's famously called Dottie. That's what everybody knows it as he, you know, that fish wasn't caught legally. It was caught outside of the mouth since he was sight fishing it. And just to hear that, I think that was in 2006. Did you get, uh, did you get word of that? Like, did you see it? And you're like, holy crap, I cannot believe this. It was crazy. I
1: mean, that fish was caught a number of times. Mike yeah. Long caught it, Jed caught it, and Matt caught it. It's insane. Yeah. And that fish, that fish. I mean, probably came as close as anyone, any fish really, you know, to 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 reaching that apex. You know, I mean, to really to getting there. I mean, who knows that that fish had not been harassed quite as much or could have gotten bigger. I mean, you know, who eat, eating a big breakfast that morning. I mean, who mm-hmm. knows, right? I, I, no. It was Fascinating that the same that this fish kept on showing up everywhere, you know, like, but it kept recurring. It was a recurring character in the book. you know.
0: Yeah. And then, um, Oh yeah. Recurring character in a book. And then I think it was the next, it was either in the winter or the spring. They actually found that fish floating and I can't, I think they scaled it and it was a little bit, I think it was like 24 pounds, but that is, you know, the biggest legitimately documented bass ever caught. Unfortunately it wasn't caught you know, on the guidelines of being legal and and recognized as a fish. But, you know, I'd seen that I'd seen that picture 100, 150 times throughout my life. And until I was writing down the questions for this interview, I hadn't realized you had talked to the guy and he wasn't. You know, he wasn't the the main character of the three guys, but I was just like, oh, my gosh, I got to hear this guy's story and hear him talk and hear his buddy Judd talk. And it's just like, wow, this is a very small world. And it just goes to show that even, you know, three, four years after you were doing all these interviews for the book, uh, Lake Dixon and California in general, were still pushing out good fish like that. Yep. yep. I actually did a big, I went back out there after the
1: book and did a story on those guys for, uh, about that fish, uh, for field and stream, which is really fun.
0: Oh, that's so awesome. I'm going to have to look at that tomorrow. Um, and then, so after after talking to the California guys, well, the California guys who are fishing and stuff, you got to interview um, Mickey Ellis, who everybody listening to this podcast knows. It's guy behind Three Sixteen Lures. You guys know who he is. He's he's very infamous, uh, especially in today's uh, world. But you got to interview Mickey, and I will say, I I met Mickey this this last April down in Texas. I got to go to his shop out there. He knew of me, which was. um, you know, it, it I was, it was, it was very interesting. We're standing on his boat. He's showing us some of the baits that he's fishing with and stuff. And he's like, uh, I'm, I'm wearing my shirt that has the, the podcast logo on it. He's like, Hey, do you know the scales and tails guy? And I, I was literally freshly done with sow belly, like a day or two before we flew down there. And I verbatim quote me. I said, it depends. Why? What do you think about him? And he's like, Oh, I like what he's doing. Like, he seems like a cool guy. I'm like, yeah, that's me. It's like, oh, I, I like your podcast. You know, I haven't really listened to much of it, but I know who you are. And I, I see your stuff all the time. And after reading Sal Belly and hearing his life story, I knew the type of guy he was, but nobody talks about his story like you do, obviously, in the book. And hearing him say that and not cuss me out, you know, oh, I heard you talking crap, or, you know, whatever it may be. That was probably the highlight of my trip down there in Texas. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this guy you know, didn't want to knock me out for something I said or or just something like that. I was like, wow. And in talking to him, you know, he had hints of, of what you talk about in the book, but all in all, like I understood what he was talking about when he was talking about guys like him being mad at guys and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, it just, I don't know. It was just very interesting to meet him, especially after reading the book and you talked to him, what was your first impressions after meeting him? So he mickey's one of those one of the great things about doing a
1: project like a book like a big project when you give yourself time to do it yep and you allow yourself the time to kind of chase rabbit holes and chase, you know go down rabbit holes and all that sort of stuff you know i didn't i didn't know who mickey ellis was before i started doing this book and i started you know started hearing his name here and then started hearing it over here and i was like holy crap this guy uh has got to be a character uh, yeah <laughs> somehow so um then he turned out to be a, one of the i loved writing about him. He was awesome. He's such a fascinating guy. Um, and so, yeah, so I just, uh, you know, same deal. I kind of like, you know, you start to hear there are a couple other people like that. I mean, Porter hall wasn't uh, someone I'd ever heard of really either. Um, mm-hmm. But you just, the more you interview people, the more they kind of their names that you keep hearing. And you're like, Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta get on that dude. And so, yeah, so he was, Mickey was just phenomenal. I mean, I loved uh, I, I, there were works of art. He was making too. I thought, I mean, they were, Obviously, great fish catchers too, but they—they they reminded me a little bit of like Atlantic salmon flies, like these beautiful sort of works of art that were functional. It was like taking the the van, go down, and using it as a dinner table or something like that. It was just, you know, just just cool to see, uh, you know, an artisan kind of at work, you know, and a and a an artisan with a really interesting backstory, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about um his father passing away when he's super young and kind of his his upbringing, and then and then you kind of. You really hit home around that time. Uh, his his stepdad came in the picture and, and stuff. And it kinda, you know, you touch on that. And as a guy who had met him and stuff, I'm like, okay, he's not he's not what everybody kind of pegs him to be once you know his story. You're like, okay, this this makes sense on why why he is kind of how he is it was his upbringing and stuff and, and the stuff he experienced and the stuff he had gone through, like being through juvie, uh, like he was in juvie for like four years or something like that a couple of times and, and just hearing his full story. And then also, so the podcast is really, uh, like based around the, the style baits he was making, like these works of art that, that just, you know, just have beautiful trout paint jobs, bluegill paint jobs and stuff, but they're, they're made to catch these giant fish and that's kind of, you know, he was kind of a a founding father for that style of thing. And so when I got to talk to him and I got to read the book and stuff, it's just like, wow, this is, this is interesting. And, and he is literally, you know, he was like a guy who was helping pave the way to where we're at 20 years later. And I mean, I could show you baits and and you would think that I went and caught him out of the, the lake in the backyard. Like they just, they're super realistic. And, and he gets, he gets a rap, but it's like, I don't care what kind of guy he was, he got us to where we are now. And that's just super cool. I mean, he was catching the mission fish back then was, was helping uh, Mike catch all these big fish and stuff at the time. And that was like revolutionary. And it's just super cool to, to hear what he brought to the table, but also hear what was going on behind the scenes, like what kind of pushed him to start making baits and, and uh, you know, it being a full-time gig. And he thought he was going to become a millionaire after going to his first show and stuff like that. And, and obviously, like I said before, that's stuff that you don't know unless you read, unless guys like you interview these people and, and put them in books and stuff and kind of put them in libraries. Because, you know, if you, if you, t- if you texted Mickey and, you know, asked him a question that, that you had had, you know, there's a good possibility that he'd just tell you to F off or whatever it may be. So, like, you being there and, and making relationship with him and, and being able to publish his story and, and just the questions you asked him, it was just super cool because that's like, that's another guy that has a shell that you, you don't crack unless you're a guy like you and get to hang out with him and stuff like that.
1: Yep. Yep. He was truly a pioneer. And you know, he's, he's probably mellowed a bit in the intervening years. I'd imagine most people do. Uh,
0: So I, obviously I didn't know him around the time you're talking to him, but some of the stuff he was saying when, when we were hanging around his boat uh, in April, I was just like, wow. Yeah you know, there, I guarantee there was stuff you didn't write down in the book that, that he talked about and stuff. Cause that's just kind of the guy he is. And there's stuff that I wouldn't say in the podcast that that he was saying at the, at the, at the, uh, at his shop. And I'm just like, wow, this guy, you know, he, he is authentic. He wasn't putting on a show for you. He wasn't putting on a show for me. Uh, my friend Marshall has, has been to a shop and has hung out with him on multiple occasions. And he's like, yeah, that's how he is. That is that is who Mickey Ellis is. There's, there's not a front. That's not a show. That's just the type of guy he is. And I'm like, well, you know, you can't, you can't be upset for a guy with, with, with how he is because that's just, that's what he is. Twenty four seven. Like he's not, he wasn't fluffing himself up to, to act like a badass in the book or, or be whatever. I mean, there's literally, I put it down in the questions. The quote, uh, if there's one thing I'm really good at, it's knocking people out. And it's just like, I mean, that's, that's his personality for sure in a nutshell. <laughs>
1: Yep. Yeah. He's quite, he's incredible care. One of my most, again, one of my most favorite characters I've ever
0: kind of come across and written about. How, how long did you, uh, did you hang out and interview him for? Was it just a day or two?
1: Yeah, it was just a day or two. I think I remember driving there and hanging out and kind of getting a tour and looking at the baits and, you know, getting my tape recorder out and asking him some questions and hanging out. Honestly, I don't remember. I think we went to have lunch maybe or dinner as well, you know, kind of afterwards, you know, so you just, you know, my job is really to try to spend as much time as I can uh, with these folks to try to, you know, get the questions that I have answered, but also just let them talk, you know, and yeah. let them sort of fill in the blanks that, that I have no idea are blank, you know, and, uh, and try to watch them in their natural element and try to like, you know, render them as closely to their true selves as possible.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, another, like, kind of going back, uh, a reoccurring question did you keep up with them at all after, after you wrote the book? I did not. I did not.
1: So one, one thing in my job that's really funny, probably like anybody's job is like, once you do something uh, you finish the book and then it takes like a year for it to come out Mm -hmm. and then you do all the publicity and there's this big hubbub. And then, you know, if you're, you want to keep eating and sending your kids to school and stuff like that, you got to keep working. So I, I had moved on pretty quickly to other projects that, you know, demanded my attention so i didn't have much time to sort of keep up with with a lot of the characters unfortunately i did i have kept up with the uh, sammy Yera, uh the cuban oh. guy a little bit here and there all the, probably been mm, eight years nine years since i've talked to him but oh wow <clears throat> i kept up with him he partially because he, he emailed a lot I was like what's going on what's yeah, yeah up there you know he always was <laughs> curious so, well,
0: Oh, that's funny. And, um, so, so this was at the time where, where Mike and Jerry Rago were kind of, you know, pushing each other to make the, the best fishing baits. And, uh, the one thing that really stuck out was, was once you're done kind of interviewing them both and you're kind of closing down that section of the book, Jerry talks about a bait where, uh, cause I think you had said something about the Armageddon that, that Mickey was working on this big wake bait and Jerry Jerry's like well when you see him tell him about this bait I'm working on and he talks about how you know you would stand on one side of the river the lake and I'd stand on the other and the baits tied onto both rods and you're just reeling it back and forth and he's like you know and he he lists the reasons like oh it's not making a big splash it's quiet xyz like a big bass is gonna catch on it and uh, my friend Marshall and I Marshall lives down in Texas and and he's very good he talks with Mickey and stuff and You know, I, he read the book before me and he's like, dude, you have to read this section. And we were just talking about that bait. He's like, I've never heard anything like of that bait after, after the book, like it's never been talked about before. And he's like, do you think, do you think he made it? And I'm like, I don't know. So that's kind of like the, the thing, there's some stuff in the book where guys talk about it and you just never heard it come to fruition, or it was so low key that you never heard about it. So that's super cool. I mean, again, if you didn't write that and publish that little, you know, three sentence section the world would never know about this. The idea that Jerry Rago had that maybe never happened. I love the idea. Loved it. So cool. And um, yeah. So those two guys are like staples in the swim bait world. Everybody knows those two. Everybody has had one of their baits caught many fish on their baits. If they're just, you know, 20 years, you know, not necessarily 20 years, but 18, 20 years down the line, these guys are still relevant, still making baits, still pushing the envelope for, for new style baits. And that's just super cool to see. I mean, it's, it's a timeless thing. And, and they maybe they might not have been obsessed with catching the world record, but they were obsessed with providing the tools to, and, and they still are, maybe not the world record, but the biggest fish that's in your lake. I mean, Mickey, we were talking and he's like, he asked me, he's like, what's your personal best fish? And I'm like, Oh, just under six pounds. And you know, he gave me, he gave me some flack for it. And then I told him I lived up in Michigan and stuff like that. And he's like, Oh, okay. He's like, I just don't understand, you know, all these uh, for a better term, all these sissies, out here fishing and, and they're not fishing for the biggest, biggest fish in their Lake. Like what the hell, what's the point of fishing? And he kind of had that, he had that Bob perspective of, you know, I'm not going out there to catch the little shit fish. I'm going out there for the world record, if not the biggest fish that that's swimming around in my water. And that's kind of uh, a perspective that I've always had. But once he said it and I heard it in person, it just kind of rang a little bit more true to me. Yep. One thing
1: that's cool about these obsessed people, whether they're obsessed with catching the world record, uh, bass or catching a world record tarpon or obsessed with rocketry or or, or golf or whatever is that they those are the folks at the, at the, at the edge who are pushing the envelope. And yeah. a lot of times you see it, it's more clearly demonstrated, I think in the, in the tarpon world, because uh, they had to catch up so quickly with the with equipment in order to catch these large fish. But, you know, they're the ones that, that push these innovations that, that we all uh, benefit from. Um, you know i mean they're they're to a certain degree their thirst and desire for new baits and for swim baits stuff like that are they're the, are the ones that kind of help at least legitimize it put it on the map and you know in the, in the tarpon world you know we wouldn't necessarily we would have probably eventually gotten there but we wouldn't necessarily have gotten that you know the great unbreakable graphite rods and uh reels that could that could handle a 200 yard run yeah out, not burn out. up yeah they're, in a lot of ways, it's it's in both of those books, in the Tarpon book and the Largemouth Bass book, you know, it, it's as much about it, it, a side sort of current to this whole thing is about the technology that comes from uh or, or, or that comes from these these obsessed folks and their obsessive quest and, and how we all sort of, in the end, kind of benefit from them, which is a kind of a cool little, little, little part of that. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure it happens in golf. I'm sure it happened in tennis. You know Yeah, I mean? yeah. The first person to you put graphite in a tennis racket, you know, made a big, that was a big leap. Yeah. Revolutionary for the tennis game.
0: (laughs) Um, You talked about how Jerry and and Mickey were, were friends. Do you think it was a little bit more serious than, than friendly competition between the two?
1: Yeah. I mean, I got the, I got the feeling that they respected each other a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: The, The sort of art and the practical art that they were, both making but yeah they they both want to be the, the big man on the the high man on the totem pole that's for sure
0: yeah yeah <clears throat> and kind of coming up with these last few questions so at the end of the book you talked about cuba and you explained all of these all of these other places like japan and africa and stuff where these ha- where they have these big fish was that um i mean at the time it was it was expected that this fish was going to come out of california and and you actually took a trip down to cuba and which, you know, was kind of a big no-no at the time. I mean, still still pretty much is. Was that, you know, what was that like? Like you were literally going down there to talk to this gentleman who who at the time was was Cuba's best bass fisherman, quote, because he won the big tournament and stuff. Was there, you know, any like, I mean, I guess what were you thinking when you went down there? What was the idea that this guy is the best and I want to see if he's ever tangled with a fish this big?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with with cuba and i knew i needed to go somewhere international and you know japan was certainly on the radar screen i, I didn't really want to go all the way to africa right um uh, <clears throat> cuba seemed like the natural place to be because there were more rumors of big fish down there than anywhere else in terms of international destinations yeah uh, and then i met sammy uh through a friend and uh it was a wild ass experience i mean you can go down there legally now yeah. um, you could not go down there legally then and uh, you know, I had I never forget flying into the airport. Um uh the lights went out in the in the damn airport. Uh oh, and shit. the went out as we were landing and they had luckily like reserve generator lights come up. But I mean the lights in the whole city went out. Whoa. We uh, were out when I first got there and I went to the hotel and they finally came back gone. But like it was just a crazy like I never really spent any time in a true sort of third world. I mean Area, I mean Sammy Yera, the character that I was down there with had the equivalent of a PhD up here and oh, he really? was a professor remember, and, and he lived basically in a shantytown. I mean, I went wow. to his house. It was crazy. It's like, it's like literally you could hear the neighbors were right next door, like almost mm-hmm. like Adobe houses. Um, so it was really interesting to see uh, that sort of, uh, you know, contrast that with the materialism and the, and you know, the advantages that we have here in the United States, but also, I mean, in some ways he was the purest character because he wasn't, there, there was no monetary there would be no monetary reward for him because right, he wouldn't yeah. have been able to to get wouldn't be able he couldn't even get I I brought him a stack of field and streams in outdoor lives outdoor life that was like, you know, I don't know how many he brought, probably 30 or something like that. Because mm-hmm. he just wanted to kind of catch up and keep up with what was going on. And uh but, you know, all that said, he, he you know, he lacked some of the material comforts that we had or have here. Uh but he was also the most sort of most well adjusted and happiest of, of all the characters as well. Um, and I just loved being with him and I loved, you know, he was a skinny guy, but he had these massive shoulders. And I remember asking him at one point, I mean, I spent a long time with him. I spent like five or six days with him. And uh, I remember just asking him one time, like, hey, dude, do you work out? Like, what's going on? Why are your shoulders so big? And it was- I got to row the boat. <laughs> and those tournaments, they would, you know, fire off the gun to begin a tournament. They didn't have any motors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone had to row their boats out to the spots or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was just fascinating traveling that country- you know, the natural beauty of that country is sort of unparalleled, especially in the interior, which a lot of people don't go to. And, you know, going to these lakes and seeing, uh, you know, some of these lakes even had kind of like, almost like resort areas, but they all had been closed down for five years when the Russians pulled all their money. And, you know, just just being with a person who was just so happy just to sort of be there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's something really touching about about Sammy, actually. And, that, you know, he turned like I said, he turned out to be sort of the purest, uh of, of all the characters to a certain degree
0: yeah that's super cool and i mean he he probably picked your brain if i remember correctly he had known who bob was right and he asked you about bob he, he knew all the guys he knew he
1: was as much of a font of information i mean he knew he knew some things he would you know hint at some things that i hadn't i'd be like oh i hadn't heard that and i'd yeah. go check it out and see if the story was true, whatever but yeah no he he was Obsessed with American, uh, bass. I mean, you know, t- a lot of the Cubans at that point were obsessed with America because it seemed like a land of like milk and honey, right? Mm-hmm. Where you could go, you were, wouldn't be under a communist regime, right across the could, water, you know, yeah. And it was ninety miles across the Florida Straits, and but to him, you know, so to him, it was like baseball and bass were the two things that he just loved about about America, and he had this sort of I- I- idealized version of. America and that was cool too to like to realize you know frankly how good we have it here and uh you know sometimes we don't really realize all of that until it's sort of put in relief by someone else you know um so yeah but he loved you know he was just obsessed with everything bass fishing uh I, I even went back and I s- somehow snuck him another 30 copies you know I got like the, the year before's copies of uh, mm-hmm. Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and, and sent them down to him but yeah we had a pretty lively email correspondence. He always wanted to know what was going on. What's Porter Hall doing? What's what are they doing in Texas? Like he always wanted to stay on top of what was going on.
0: That's super cool. And and yeah, you uh, you interviewed Porter Hall. That was the chapter before you talk about international stuff. And I mean, he was fishing for the record for the longest time out in Cali and then um they relocated down to florida or his his wife had relocated down or ex-wife had relocated down to florida and he was up in georgia right and had an apartment down there in florida by her too or tennessee yep. tennessee that's what it was well he was in mississippi mississippi yeah and when i interviewed him he in yeah. yeah and i mean was it he obviously had a different perspective of of the world record. Like he had done the chase, you know, obviously he didn't, he didn't bag the one that he needed. And then he just, you know, thought he bought that property and was kind of like dug all those ponds and it was, you know, Hey, why don't, why don't I just, you know, make my own? Why don't I, you know, build this fish from the ground up? And that's what he did. Did, um, did he have any, was he worried at all or did he talk about being worried of, of, you know, producing this fish and it not counting for the world record if there was ever that chance?
1: He was super jittery and anxious all the whole time about what the guys were doing and always kept tabs on what all those guys were doing in california kept tabs even on texas he was fascinating because he was the i think he was the sole character who came from money mm-hmm. you know he lived in a very she suburb of birmingham alabama grew up there anyway he had a lot of money and uh it was just interesting because he was he, he he was unusual in that world uh because he came from a lot of wealth but yet this was what he wanted more than anything else he didn't care about anything else he didn't even care about his marriage as much as he did about these these fish, you know. And uh, it was truly fascinating to go to hang out with him. You know, he was really careful about when he would fish for the fish in his ponds and super anal about when to feed them and how yeah. to feed them. Uh, you know, he knew that he had named some of the fish that were in his ponds. I mean, he kind of knew, you know, where they hung out and all this. Kind of, it was just, it was just really interesting to, to hang out with him
0: yeah how did how did you hear about him or kind of get word of him
1: he uh I don't remember exactly who told me about him but he was he was he was a, involved in that California craze for a little while so his name came up I think it came up in newspapers and stuff like that and actually I grew up in Birmingham for a little while and uh so he was a uh, I forgot I found him through I think he went to school with my cousin or something like that but okay I found him in a weird way like through my cousin and oh like, oh yeah Porter we went to we went to Mountain Brook High School with him or something like that. So yeah, I yeah. You know, found him that way. It was it was really interesting. Really. Oh,
0: that's funny. <clears throat> and then kind of a, the last question here. So talked about the international stuff and and you hinted at Japan. You know, uh, Lake Biwa at the time. You know, this was a couple years after the writing is when it really, when 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 that when the the fish was caught that twenty two point four. You know, it tied dang near perfect with uh with George's fish and it obviously wasn't recognized as the new world record, you know, it's the tying one and, and whatever it may be. Did that, you know, maybe did that bring your perspective? It's like, Oh man, like, you know, California might be on its way out. Japan might be the new, the new King around town type thing.
1: I mean, one of the things that really intrigued me about this, I think, and I wrote about it in the book was that it, it, the record could be broken by anyone. Yeah. Right. I mean, if anyone was sort of prepared to weigh the thing or whatever it could be done by anyone so what what drove these record chasers i wrote about absolutely crazy was that fact right that it not only was poor keeping tabs on mike long and mac weekly and jed dickerson stuff like that he was worried that some 12 year old girl might luck into this thing yeah yeah Um, so that i i think the japan thing um sort of brought that home right i mean all of these guys thought that It's going to happen probably in California, maybe if Texas gets it together, uh, you know, or maybe Cuba or something like that. And yeah, it could happen in Japan, it could happen in Africa or whatever, but they didn't really think about competition from those places and parts of the world. So uh, to me, that kind of brought it all home that like this is a record, much to the dismay of all these record chasers, that could happen at any time, yeah, almost anyone, and in very various different places across the world.
0: Right. And, and when you were writing style Belly, this was about the time when Texas uh, Game and Wildlife was was starting the Lunker Bunker and, and kind of starting the share Lunker program and stuff. And I mean, you wrote you wrote about this and, and Texas was still giving up good fish at the time. But, you know, fast forward 15 years from there, Texas now is is putting out probably the biggest fish in the country I would say almost consistently. I mean, there in the spring when the fish are spawning, there's not a day goes by that somebody doesn't post a share lunker fish over, well, a 10 pounder or a fish that's a share lunker, which is 13 plus pounds that gets donated. I mean, dude, there is not a day in the spring that a fish doesn't get posted over 10 pounds. It comes out of one single Lake. It has share lunker fish in it. it. It's got spawn and stuff in it. And, um, I mean, even, even, uh, Lake Athens, where the, where the uh, bunker is, there is very big fish in there that are just now starting to show themselves after they've had this 10 to 15 year growth period. And now there's even a new lake that just popped up within the last couple of weeks that a guy I know just caught a 12, four out of there from a kayak and and guys are catching a double digit every single day in the fall. And I I think somebody had like a 50 pound better, like a 60 pound bag the other day with five fish. And it's, it's showing hopes and and glimmers of, you know, not necessarily Lake Dixon, but it's like, okay, if, if there's a lake in Texas that doesn't get fished for another four years, I mean, there is a very good chance that a fish untouched in the next four years could be caught that, that is, you know, that 19, 19 pounds. And then during the spawn, it puts on two or three pounds. And I really think if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next couple of years on an untouched body of water where that fish is spawning. And it's just 22 and a half, 23 pounds, but you know, all the stuff have to align and it. You know, it almost seems like there's more guys who categorize themselves as trophy hunters now, but they're not addicted to the chase. It seems like, like, like the guys you write about in the book. I mean, they're going out there every single day and stuff, but they're doing it for different reasons. And it's just, uh, I don't know, man. It's a, it's a very weird thing. The world of bass fishing has changed immensely since you wrote that book and it's changed. It changes by the year and you hear stories about guys snagging big fish and and stuff like that. So it's, uh, I don't know, man, if it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen. Like I said, in the next couple of years. And if it doesn't and kind of Texas falls back off and plateaus with, with, you know, smaller big fish, then I don't know. The only other place I can think of is Africa and Japan. Africa has been putting out a bunch of big fish lately and, and Japan as well. And, it, like you said, it's, it would eat me up alive if I was in an area that I thought had the world record, but I had to not only watch over my shoulder, I had to watch the national, you know, the national side of it. And then on the other, the, the literal world side of things, because I don't know what these guys in Japan, what kind of fishing experiences they're having out there. Like they could, they could catch the world record three times in a matter of a month. And it could be 27 pounds a week from now. And a guy in the U S would you know, realistically, probably not have a chance at that for the next 10 or 15 years until this next big group of fish shows up.
1: Yep. I mean, what's interesting to me is like, you know, that, that, that mark is probably pretty darn close to the biological limit for the species. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit like, it's a little bit like the fat man who has to, who, when he dies, has to get cut out of his house. Right. right. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that many 400, 500 pound humans, even though they're a decent amount of, you know, people who are a little overweight these days but i mean there's not you know there's a limit right there's a limit to like how much how big these things get same thing with the tarpon by the way i mean it's like 200 a little over 200 pounds seems like you know or you know 230 to something like that seems like the biological limit uh has has been reached so they're just not you know these are true outliers a a Mm -hmm. 20 plus bass is a a true outlier um and i think that you know obviously shows up in the record book. I think, you know, obviously there've been fish that have been caught uh, that have been that big and maybe even bigger that just weren't recorded. People weren't fishing for world records or whatever, but you know, it's, it's right there at that sort of biological limit, which makes the thing even harder, right? And you got to be in the right spot at the right time with the right fish.
0: Yeah. Like fish can physically only get so long and so obese to a point where their literal age clock times out and that fish keels over because it's, you know, it's so big or, or just whatever it may be. It's, it's a very interesting thing. And you actually wrote about, um, oh, the daughter and son who were, she caught that, you know, the quote unquote, the world record that she thought. And it was just, you know, from the picture, everybody's like, that fish is not long enough. It's not wide enough. And they're like, oh no, the, the boga grips or, or the spring scale, whatever they had at the time. No, it was right. Whatever, you know, and, and they, or no, maybe they hadn't weighed it. And she put the fish back and everybody's like, you had a scale in the picture or whatever it may be or a, a phone to call, it's like, it just drives people to do insane leaps of things that probably wouldn't their, their characteristics aren't there for. And, and I guess that this is kind of leading into the last big question, you know, 2018, that, that video surfaces a Mike long, that, you know, hour and 20 minute video of him, you know, doing things that aren't necessarily legal to kind of keep his name and, and reputation at the top. Did did you see that when it first happened, or did anybody send it to you?
1: Yeah, some somebody from uh, a website. Uh, I did an interview with someone. He sent me all the stuff, and they did a long. I think he's the guy that broke the story. I don't remember his name, but um, yeah. So I he, he was, and I did probably an hour long kind of walk through and chat through
0: with him mm. about it. Yeah, and was it was it intriguing to see that that's kind of. I mean, you know his story and you have an idea of, of that obsession, what that drove him to. Could you believe that that was something that he would mm, stoop down to do, I guess, to, to stay relevant? I mean, you talked about his personality and how he had to be pushing the envelope and kind of be the talk of the town. Were you surprised when, when that story broke and you saw the video evidence? I mean, the the archived video evidence of that?
1: I mean, I think it's always surprising to watch someone get caught red-handed doing something illegal. Yeah, right? yeah, no blatantly where. like that. Um, but as I thought about it more, you know, I go back to the whole like Barry Bonds or, or mm-hmm. the aging ball player kind of yeah. thing. Like it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, you know, knowing him, uh, knowing how much, how important it was to him, knowing how much he feared the competition, knowing, knowing how much he wanted to keep his name in the in the limelight, like it all kind of lines up, right? It's not, it's not terribly surprising. It still yeah. is, like I said, John to you know it's like i don't know the guys who just got busted put the weights down the wall i mean it's still just i can't believe people do kind of shit like that so that yeah. shocks me but but no i think when you put it in perspective it's not uh, it's not that surprising
0: you know you you know what people are capable of but when you see them actually carry out those events it it rocks you. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, like I, I knew you'd known, known him, you'd talked on, you wrote about him and it's just like, wow. I mean, I know what drives that guy. And the fact that he was driven to that point was probably just absolutely in, in, insane to, to see that unravel. And, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure probably get some flack for this. I'm sure he's not a terrible guy by any means. I'm sure he's, he's fun to talk to and kind of pick his brain about what he knows back then. But I mean, when that story broke, he made his Instagram private. He ended up deleting it a couple of weeks later. I mean, I got to imagine that he was on the highest of highs 2010, 2015. And then after that stuff happened, I mean, I don't even know nobody. I mean, when people talk about him, that's obviously what they talk about. They don't talk about him in the light that you had seen him back then. I mean, his name has gotten dragged and tattered and, and set on fire and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, it's, watching superman turn into a bad guy like it's just like it's just the craziest thing to see unravel or or when barry bonds when he gets popped for steroids like you said or or same with lance armstrong it's just like wow you're the good guy for so long and then something just clicks and, and you turn out to be the bad guy in somebody else's story like it's just a it's a very interesting see, very interesting thing to see somebody get pushed to
1: yeah it takes as they say it takes years to build up a good reputation it takes
0: you know one silly act in one second to have it all fall down. Yeah. yeah, man, for sure. And, uh, last question that actually quite a few people had asked me and kind of wanted me to, to, uh, uh, hear your perspective on. So all this happens. And then after, like you said, after the book comes out, you know, the, these couple of very large fish get caught in, in world record and, in, uh, tying world record size fish. Was there, and, and obviously you, you did, you kind of did the same story, but it was, it was the, the fly fishing tarpon side of things. Was there any interest to revisit the trophy side of bass fishing again? And and like we talked about now, you know, guys, there's trophy bass fishermen, but the elusiveness of the trophy of the world record bass isn't necessarily there like it was back then. Is there any interest for you to to maybe write up a follow up of of like the guys in today's uh, bass culture that are trying to chase this fish? Or was it just kind of like you struck gold at that time and kind of the mine is dried up? Yeah, I mean like I said you kind of have to move on to other projects but
1: no I mean I I I would bet that there's probably a great book in what's going on now um I don't know if I'm the right person to do it but I feel like that's probably been gotten out of my system a little bit same with tarpon by the way I mean I feel like when you when you put that much into it to, to write an entire book about it you kind of you've, you've laid out all your cards to a certain degree I'm not so sure I'll put it this way I'm not so sure there's anything new I could bring to it right um and I do feel like uh you know sow and the tarpon book kind of captured like i said before apex moments and uh to me that's you know those were fascinating incredibly fascinating times i i don't know uh someone suggested that i write a follow-up to the tarpon book and, and i thought i kept i thought about it a little bit and i thought about it. it could be called Lords of the fly Two: the revenge of the tarpon it's when yeah, they yeah. take over and start chewing on all the people who are uh <laughs> yeah, exactly so no but i mean i you know i i I admire all the people who are doing it now I you know it takes an amazing amount of dedication uh they're incredible fishermen I think it's I think it's awesome um uh you know I've I've got uh, I just have other projects that I'm doing now and I'm so grateful for that book it was the first one that I that I wrote I mean you love people always ask me what my favorite book is uh I've written now six of them and they're like children, right? You can't really be like, well, I like this one better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they'll always be your first, you know, and that, they're, so they'll always be a really special place, uh, you know, in my heart for Sal Belly because it was the first, it was the first time that, that I had written an entire book. It was the first time that someone had the confidence in me to, to write an entire book. Yeah. it was the first time that I, you know, gone out and, you know, you, you, the crazy thing about books is unlike movies, stuff like that, like it's all up to you, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't have a booker calling up people and trying to set up interviews and all this stuff like that. It's just me. Right. And so like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the structure is all me and who I include and who I don't include and the stories I include and don't. So it's all down to you. So, you know, it gave me confidence that I could actually make a go at this and like, you know, do this for a living. So it, it will always be a pretty special book for me. <laughs> and I'm so awesome. to, I'm so happy that people are still reading. It. I think it's awesome. It's, I haven't read it in 15 years. So, uh, maybe i need to check it out again but uh it's so cool that you got you and other people are reading
0: about it are still interested in it. i love it yeah man it uh <clears throat> it's uh it's uh, it's just that ageless uh classic tale that that you read of of like the, it's just, it's an obsession book that that you know i share to an extent i don't have the opportunities that these guys have back then and and nor do many other people but we're still we still have that obsession for these very small green fish that make up, you know, a a little speck in the world, like you said, and to kind of have that book that correlates with our ideas, but to an extent, tenfold of these guys who, as as far as I'm concerned, we're at the prime time of of this journey of this chase. I mean, it's just so cool. And, And like I said, if the book wasn't, if, if Sal Belly wasn't around, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be an insight to this. I mean, I would, I guarantee I wouldn't know what I know contributed to, to the 2000 bass fishing era outside of, of swim baits and stuff. I mean, this, these are guys that we're talking about live line and crawdads and, and stuff like that. And that's just something that nobody talks about now. It, it's too far gone. And, and, you know, it's, if anybody talks about it, they get called like the uncle Rico, like, Oh, you know, yeah, you're just living in the glory days type thing, but for it to be in a book and, and for me get to pick your brain about it, you know, you said, like we were talking about in the email, you know, oh, it's been a little while since I wrote that book, but it's like, Yes, it's been a little while, but you still got to be there and live it. I mean, when you were writing the book, I was two or three years old, still wearing diapers. Like, and now here I am 20 years later and I get to, I get to read it and and relive it. And I mean, I get, I get goosebumps when they're talking about these 22 pound fish and just, it's that thing that, that you chase, even though, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, not obtainable for you. It's kind of like that, that taboo of, of giant bass fishing and in the the subculture behind it and stuff like that. And it's just gotten even more, you know, the rabbit holes just gotten even deeper, even though the fish aren't getting bigger, it's just growing a a, a cult following behind it. So I think, you know, that book for being 15, 20 years old or or however, a couple of years, uh, shy of 20, I mean, it's a book that people still sit down and read and they're like, wow you know, I'm jealous that I didn't grow up in this time that I wasn't, you know, I didn't live at a bachelor house working at a casino. And and my boss let me get off work to go fish Lake Dixon and, and chase around uh, Mike Long and stuff. And, and, you know, watch him take pictures with my fish. It's a, it's a story that you get to read. And I mean, it's honestly, it seems like a fictional book. Like, it's like, wow, like these events that are talked about in this book just seem so unreal but I mean, they're real accounts with people. I, I talked to Mickey about the book. He's like, Oh yeah, I, I remember that book. Oh yeah. It's just like, it's just so cool. It's, it's kind of a, like I said, it's, it's that piece that sits in the library and it's just a, a little section of a bass fishing history that, that many guys like myself didn't get to live through. So I appreciate the book. And like I said, I'm sure many guys who have listening to this show uh, have, have listened or have re- read it and, and stuff like that and enjoy it. There's just that handful of classic big bass books that, that you have to read. And in sow belly is if not one number two on that list of, of books that just, you know, is a staple for, for swimbait guys to read. So, so I'm sure we all, we all appreciate you reading this or writing this book. It was, like I said, it's just an insight to a time that, that many of us don't know. And, I mean, yeah, there's people that are still buying it and reading it. I, like I said, I've read it two or three times this year and it's just an awesome book, man.
1: Yeah. It's cool. I I can, every once in a while get a little report from the publisher and it it is still being bought, which is, which is great. I mean, not a lot of books that do that. So I'm very, very grateful. Like I said. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And thanks to all your listeners. Yeah. So awesome, man. So as always, I want to thank Monty for coming on. Do you have, um, like an Instagram or, or like an author Facebook page or anything that anybody can can follow you on that I can put in the show notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty bad at Instagram. Um
1: yeah, I mean if you just search Monty Burke writer, you'll come up. I have a website uh that's got all my books on it, some articles, stuff like that. Um but that's probably the best way to and you can email me from there too, actually. So yeah,
0: yeah, that's, it. that's how that's how I got a hold of you. I mean, I shot you an email and I'm like, man, I want to talk to this guy. You know, I didn't even really know if, if that was something that you'd be interested in doing. And and you got back to me like, you know, an hour later and I'm just like, wow, this guy, you know, I, I, I was like, I don't even know if he knows how relevant that this book is still, still is. And this little core group of guys that, that enjoy the show and, and I talk to and stuff, but it, like I said, it's a, it's a timeless, timeless classic. And and guys are still reading it. And I was just, I was just over the moon when you said it. I mean, like I said, I had butterflies at the beginning of this. Cause I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm talking to this guy who who got to experience all this and, and talk to these guys who, who people still talk about. It's just, it's a, it's a very cool thing. So I want to thank you for coming on. I'll put your website and everything in the, uh, in the show description. So guys can go follow that. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to read Lord of the Flies because I had a, I had a bunch of bass guys who said, have you read Lord of the Flies? It's like, it's, you know, it's the same thing, but it's on a tarp and it's on a different scale. I'm like, well, shit, now I'm going to, I'm going to have to, now it's going to be a good winter read, I think. <laughs>
1: awesome. But well, uh, you, yeah, Appreciate I want to,
0: yeah, I was going to say, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, I'll put all uh, Monty stuff in the, in the show notes. You guys go follow that, uh, follow the, follow the podcast Instagram. If you guys don't already scales and tails underscore media and check out uh, the magazine that'll be dropping soon third issue. So as always, I want to thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now we'll talk to you guys next time. See you guys.